In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the church during the virus. I probably have a different take than you're expecting. I'm going to start by reminding you that, like the rest of you, my house is full of people, so there's a chance you're going to hear people and noises in the background. All right, about a year ago, I felt an urging to pray for a revival, especially here in Canada where it's so, so desperately needed. God laid on my heart that a revival can't come to Canada until a revival came to our churches. I felt a need to call out the Canadian churches as a whole to come back to the altar of repentance, to come back to the Bible, back to wanting to please God over men. And as a Christian in Canada, I am the church. So that call is for me as well. I ask God to search my heart for anything that was a distraction. For me personally, I ended up cutting out TV during the week. On Friday nights, we have a family movie night and sometimes I'll watch cooking or decorating shows on a Saturday. But during the week, I haven't watched any TV. And I also started reading the Bible cover to cover instead of just certain parts of the Bible. That's what God called me to do personally. And then as a Christian in Canada, and therefore part of the Canadian church, I began speaking out about the things that I was seeing. That's what God called me to do. So are we ready now, church? Are we, including me, ready for a revival? As I prepped for this episode, I became very aware that most of the things I'm going to talk about probably are going to make me sound crazy. Because of that, I'm going to post the links of all of my research in the show notes. And please, if you think that what I'm saying sounds ridiculous, take a look for yourself. I'm currently here in my home with my kids doing their schoolwork online. My youngest is still being homeschooled this year, but my high school children are also home now too. It's a nice day outside. It was raining earlier, so there's a few puddles on the ground, but it's basically a nice spring day. But the government has some new rules now. I can't leave my house except to get groceries. I can't have visitors in my house. Churches are closed. Schools are closed. And it's against the law to be in public with more than five people. And the government looks like they're setting up checkpoints between our provinces. Our Prime Minister has daily press conferences where he emerges from his home for 20 to 30 minutes to remind us all to be good citizens and stay in our homes. Now, had I posted this just four weeks ago, people would have laughed at the very improbable account. They would say that there is zero chance of this ever being a picture in Canada. But it is the picture, and it happened really quickly. For the most part, everyone is just going along with it, and there have been very few questions. And the few who do ask questions are definitely shut down by everyone. Today, I'm going to dive into what I believe is happening, and then look at what I think the church should be doing. But before I do that, I'm going to play a clip from an episode I did one year ago. So just so you can remember, this is a clip from one of my podcasts from one year ago. 10 years ago this week, an article was posted in the London Times. And the article went pretty much unnoticed 
even though it might have possibly been the biggest story in my lifetime. And the article is titled Billionaire Club in Bid to Curb Overpopulation. So we're going to tell this story today. It's early May. You're working today. You work for Sir Paul Nurse at his home, and it's a great job. Paul is president of Rockefeller University, and serving in his home is both interesting and also well-paying. It's a busy day. You're going to be serving dinner, a dinner he's planned. You're not told the guest list, and you've been warned you're not to speak of this meeting. Bill Gates is in the house today. You hear him talking to Sir Paul. You're good at being in the room and not being noticed. It's your job. Prepare for the guests without being noticed. Mr. Gates is thanking Paul for the use of his home, and this is a meeting Mr. Gates has planned. The guests begin to arrive, and with each guest, you are a little more starstruck. Oprah Winfrey arrives. You have a hard time being professional. She's beautiful and full of energy, just as you imagined. Then David Rockefeller arrives, Ted Turner, Warren Buffett, George Soros, and then Michael Bloomberg. The wealth represented in this room is overwhelming to you. You serve drinks to each of your guests while avoiding eye contact with them. And you're right. The wealth in the room is overwhelming. Combined wealth is $120 billion. Once you've filled the glasses and handed the hors d'oeuvres, you head for the dining room for a final check. The guests will be having dinner in exactly one hour and 45 minutes. You're not allowed into the room while the guests speak, but you've seen the agenda. Each guest will have 15 minutes exactly to speak. They will use this time to tell the group what they believe is the most pressing problem in the world. During this time, last-minute details are being finished in the kitchen. Once the guests arrive in the dining room, you and your team begin handing out the first plates of food. Your job is to stand quietly on the edge of the room, watching the guests, and ready to get them anything they may need. This is a working dinner. Mr. Gates stands and addresses the group. Each of the causes the groups has presented is dire, but we must have an umbrella cause, one we can be united on, one cause that, if addressed, will solve the problems addressed in all of these causes. A shiver goes up your spine, and you feel privileged to be here for this moment. This is what humanity is all about, a group of the most wealthy people wanting to use their money to solve world problems you might be witnessing the greatest moment in your lifetime. Bill Gates has an answer for the umbrella cause. Population control. As the dinner progresses and more plates appear with more extravagant food prepared and served on glamorous plates, the shiver in your spine moves from excitement to fear. This group of seven elitists have made a decision. They will cap the world's population at 8.3. Once that number is picked, they begin to work at creating ways to make sure that cap will be implemented. But you are asked to leave. Dinner is finished, and they thank you for your service. You're alone in the room now, and you don't know what happens next. But you have just witnessed a group of unelected billionaires deciding how many people get to live. You have questions. Who is going to die? What will be the criteria for choosing who dies? And how will they die? So like I said, that was an episode I did a year ago. It's interesting that the same people who are trying to save the world from this virus are the same people who were at that meeting in 2009. Remember for a second where you were in 2009. I had been married for seven years. I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I was busy working in a church. 
We had recently moved to a new town and a new church. Oh, and that was the year of H1N1. Remember that panic? Imagine if I told you then that everyone in the world would panic over a virus, shut down the world economy, and give up all of our freedoms. Because of a virus that still has a 98% survival rate if you're healthy, and an 80 to 85% survival rate if you're elderly or have a pre-existing condition. No one would have believed that, yet 11 years later, here we are. I believe in 2009 when they had that meeting, they were coming up with a plan, a way to end countries, and a way to track all the people, and a way to give the UN control of the world. One way to give the UN control is to give control to a UN group so the world doesn't see it like you're giving the UN control. You're giving control to another organization which just happens to be part of the UN. What if that group was in charge of tracking diseases? The UN does have a group. It's called the World Health Organization. And yes, the WHO is a UN-run group. Some people have been coming up with a plan and it's been in the works for a while. It's called ID2020. ID2020 has been in place for a few years. And for the last few years, they've been public about what they're doing. It hasn't been a secret. They've given press releases and they have a website outlining the plan. And they've had that website for a few years. They have backings from world leaders from GAVI, which is the Vaccine Alliance, and groups including central banks. The plan has been to implement a global, worldwide implementation of a chip in 2020, hence the name ID2020. So what is ID2020? Well, it's a chip that you put in your hand or your wrist that's going to hold all of your data, your passport, your birth certificate, your health records, everything, including, of course, your vaccine records. I'm going to read right now from their own website. The ID2020 Alliance is setting the course of digital ID through a multi-stakeholder partnership, ensuring digital ID is responsibly implemented and widely accessible. All right, I'm going to put a link to that. I'm going to put a link to their entire manifesto in the show notes. The idea is this. People don't have ID on them, especially those from countries where the government is failing or where there are refugees. So if we had digital IDs implanted into every single person on the planet, then everyone would be equal. In an interview I listened to that was promoting ID 2020, they talked about how this would be great for banking and for driver's license and for healthcare. It looks like we're talking about getting a chip that would be necessary to buy or sell anything. It would be necessary to travel anywhere you need a passport or to get a driver's license or to get any healthcare. And it would be the law, not in Canada. It would be the international law. Now, the Bible said that this would happen, but we're going to get into that near the end of the podcast when I talk about how the church should be dealing with this. But let's look at what else is happening. There's been a call for a one world government. Not forever, though, just until the virus problem is solved. What I'm hearing from most of my American friends shows that there is a concern, to say the least. People aren't having it, especially the idea of being chipped. But what if it is international law, and is that even possible? Gordon Brown, who's the former Labour Prime Minister, who was at the centre of the international effort 
to tackle the impact of the near meltdown of all the banks in 2008, he's been calling for the UN to take control of the attack of the virus and to merge international banks to deal with the economical crisis that's being created by this virus or by our way of trying to not get the virus. He's not alone. There's a huge call now for the WHO, which remember, every time you hear that, think UN. So there's a call for the WHO to form a task force that would be allowed to implement rules in every country of the world. Don't worry, silly. It has nothing to do with your freedom. It's just until the virus is dealt with. Then you can get back to all those freedoms you love. And by the way, if you disagree with this, you hate grandmas. So just to make sure you're keeping up with me, there is a call for a one world government and a call to give every human being a chip that would track their health records, including their vaccines. Now, this has been a call for a couple of years now, and they've been hoping to implement it in 2020. And just in time, a pandemic that has everyone begging for a vaccine. For today, I'm not even going to talk about the locusts that are devouring crops and destroying countries, or the earthquakes happening all around the world in places that don't normally have earthquakes. But what does the Bible say about all of this? On my website, I have two video series, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I also have a podcast with Pastor Neil Sawatsky, who is my dad, preaching through the book of Revelation. And we have a podcast on the book of Daniel that's coming out soon. It's all been recorded and I'm working on editing it now. So to get good details on all of this, check that out. But here's a nutshell of what the Bible teaches. We are going to have a one world government. It will have at its head 10 nations. Those 10 nations will have a core group of three nations. Of those three nations, one man is going to emerge as the leader of the world. Everyone will have a mark of some kind on either their hand or their forehead. You will not be able to buy or sell anything without that mark. There's going to be a push for peace, a push for the end of all wars. And although there will be many wars at this time, this world leader will be calling for an end to all of the wars. And he's going to be seen as the savior of the world. The most shocking thing is a treaty will be signed, making peace in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, something that no one thinks is possible. And the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. If you're unaware, the first temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel, and it was upgraded by Herod. It was destroyed by the Romans in the year AD 70. I cover this on my other podcast, Church History. The Jews have been praying for a new temple since the year 70. There's going to be earthquakes, famines, plagues, and many people are going to die. After three and a half years, the one world leader will turn on the people. He's going to enter the temple and pronounce himself God. He will then demand the worship of all the people. At that point, if you don't have the mark, you will be killed. It will be a capital crime to not have the mark. You will also be killed if you do not worship this world leader. Interesting, Islam has a mirror version of this prophecy. By mirror, I mean the same except the opposite. The world leader is the hero in Islamic teaching. I have a video showing the difference in my video series, Islam versus Christianity. You can find that on my website under the tab, watch. The last Three and a half years are full of more death. It's pretty horrible. But for those who do take the mark on their hand or their forehead, there is no possibility of them becoming Christians. They are doomed. 
Also, a disease comes on all of those who have the mark, and it's pretty brutal. People are going to try to kill themselves to make the pain stop, except they can't die. After seven years, Jesus will return and defeat the world leader and his army. Remember at the start of this episode, I said I was a little afraid of sounding like a crazy person? Well, that's why most preachers, at least here in Canada, don't touch the book of Revelation or the last half of the book of Daniel. They don't touch it with a 10-foot pole because it sounds back crazy. But when I did the video series just a year ago, it all seemed very futuristic and not probable for today. However, in just the last three weeks, everything changed. I literally have people looking at the pros and cons of a one-world government on my Facebook feed. It's something that's so very probable now. And world leaders, even from the West, are calling for it. And everyone is begging for a vaccine from a disease with a 98% survival rate. And it's been in the plans for a few years to have us all chipped in the year 2020. Now, here's a part that some Christians debate over. Where are we during all of this? There are those who believe in the rapture and those who do not. I personally think the rapture is laid out pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for that trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. And also, here's the words of Jesus. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day, the hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days they were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two in the fields. One will be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you know not the hour your Lord comes. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also, therefore, be also ready. For in such an hour as we think not, the Son of Man cometh. The other debate is when the rapture will happen. Some believe before the seven years, some at the three and a half mark, and some at the end of the seven years. I don't really see the point in a rapture at the end of the seven years. And I believe it's before because of the reference Jesus makes to Noah. When did God put Noah on the ark to be saved? Was it after the flood? No, that would be dumb. Was it once the flood had started? No, it was before. I believe God will take his people out of this world before his wrath falls on the earth. So I said at the very start, I was going to be talking about how the church should be handling this and how it was probably not what you expect to hear. I would say the churches here in North America have been working hard through all of this to make sure the church is still operational. There have been a lot of effort put into getting our church services online so people can still have corporate worship on Sundays. That's good. I've been helping my dad get his sermons online for his church. 
The church has also been doing a good job of encouraging people. Lots of positive posts and videos reminding people that God is good and he is in control so we don't have to worry. That is also really great. And the church has been finding ways to help people who are struggling. That is also fantastic. Throughout church history, we can see that every time there's a plague, the church has stepped up in this way. And I'm glad to see we're still doing that. There is one more thing we need to do, and that is a call for repentance. We need the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes kind of call for repentance. As a country, we have so much to repent for. Every year in Canada, around 100,000 abortions take place. And just as an FYI, abortion clinics here in Ontario are considered essential services, so they're still open today. And 60% of abortions will take place in those clinics, and 40% will take place in our hospitals. All are 100% covered by our national health care, and it's legal to have an abortion at any point in your pregnancy for any reason. You can literally tell your doctor, you're just waiting to find out the sex and if you don't want a girl, so you're going to terminate her and try again. And yes, that happens. There's going to be a link to all of that in the show notes. When we read through the Bible, we can see that the thing God hates the most is the sacrifice of children. That is how Baal was worshipped in the Old Testament. I put out a tweet and a Facebook post that said, What if our churches took abortion as seriously as they did this virus? I got very negative feedback, all from Christians. But that is not all we have done here in Canada. We have sexualized our children with a radical sex ed. We have brought in adult men dressed as sexualized women to read stories to little kids. We've taught our children they can change their gender. We have sex marches in our streets with naked men and women doing disgusting things while children are both part of this parade and there to watch. And we call it pride. We have abandoned the church. In Ontario, only one out of every 20 children have ever even visited a church or seen a Bible. So yes, a call to repentance is definitely necessary. But our church also needs to repent because while all of this has been happening in our country, we've been silent and in many cases, many churches have supported this. We're doing a great job helping the poor and following the verses, if you give even a cup of water in my name, you've given me a cup of water. But too often, we give that cup of water and don't give the gospel. This will simply mean they'll be hydrated on their way to hell. But it is good and biblical to help the poor. But it must be accompanied with the gospel. Imagine facing God one day and being reminded of that time your church was full of people who had never heard the gospel. And you gave them cotton candy, bouncy castles, games. But you never once gave them the name of Jesus. How are you going to defend that to Jesus? Are you going to tell Jesus? Well, your name can be offensive. So we wanted to show them love before telling them about you because, you know, you're so offensive. So if this ends at some point and we're released back into the public and churches can meet again, here are three things I believe the church in Canada needs to do. One, the very first thing we need to do is bring back the altar. We need that Just As I Am song playing and a call to publicly come before the church and pray at the altar. We need that back. 
Two, teach the Bible, all of it. Don't leave out the parts that are uncomfortable. Have Bible studies again. Maybe bring back Sunday school classes. We used to have Sunday school and then church service and then Sunday night service and then Wednesday night study and prayer meeting. We have one hour a week now. Maybe bring some of that deep Bible study back. Three, prepare the church for when there is no longer a church. Right now, we still have the internet. What happens when that's gone? What if each church member had to function without the corporal church? Our congregations need to be prepared for that. So we need to be preparing every person in our congregation to be a Christian leader. All right, I'm going to end with this. The last three chapters in Revelation talk about hell and heaven. It's how the Bible ends. I would ask you to open your Bible and read the last three chapters of the Bible. We need to know that God is good. And yes, that's encouraging. And the message we need to share with people. But it's also a terrifying message. Because God is good. And what would a good and just God do with someone who is not good? I've heard people say, if God is good, why doesn't he get rid of all the evil in the world? A person who says that has not truly thought about their own heart. Because if God, who is good, was to get rid of everything and everyone who is not good, that would mean me and you. The thing is, God is good. And a good God will need to have justice on those who are not good. This is known in the Bible as the wrath of God and is something we do need to fear. I deserve the wrath of God and so do you. This is not the encouraging message that we want to hear. I know, but it is true. But God is not only a God who is just and a God who will pour out his wrath on the unjust. God is also love and mercy. How do these two things go together? Well, we're coming up on two special celebrations. The Jewish people are getting ready to celebrate the Passover, and Christians are getting ready to celebrate Easter. The Passover is a time when the Jewish people remember that God saved them from slavery of the Egyptians. They'd been enslaved for 400 years, and God showed justice, grace, and mercy on that day. One, he freed the people from slavery, but he also poured out justice on the Egyptian people. There were 10 plagues, each one associated with a god the Egyptians worshipped. The final plague was the death of the oldest in each family. God told the people to avoid the final plague, and to do that they needed to take a lamb from their flock, a perfect lamb with no spots, and kill it, and then put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes. Then the Jewish people were to go into their homes and prepare to leave. The angel of death came over Egypt, and only those with the blood on their door were spared. Justice was poured out, but so was grace and mercy. The Egyptians then called for the Jews to be sent away, and they were free. Every year after that, the Jewish people celebrate this day. They call it Passover, because the angel of death passed over the homes of the families with the blood on the doorpost. Jesus grew up celebrating Passover with his family, and during his ministry, he said, I am the door. I am the lamb. And then on Passover weekend, he willingly laid down his life, allowing himself to be killed on the cross. He was, is the door. He was and is the lamb. Sin had to be punished, and Jesus took that punishment. Jesus is God. You see, God in his mercy and grace 
poured out the wrath of God on himself. The cross, like Passover, shows us God's justice and his grace and his mercy. And three days later, on the Sunday that we call Easter, Jesus showed his power and his deity when he rose again. Today, he still shows us justice, grace, and mercy. You see, he already took the wrath of God on himself, but he doesn't force you to accept that. Just like Passover, there were many people who did not put the blood on the doorpost, and they were not spared from the wrath of God. Today, God calls us not to put the blood of an animal on our doorpost, but to allow the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. Sometimes people will say to me, but I'm a pretty good person, so I think I can get to heaven. A person who says that has not yet realized just how sinful and wicked they are. This is why the church needs to preach repentance. When we really are truthful with ourselves and we know we are not good, not at all, how do we allow the blood of Jesus to cover our sins? First, we start by admitting that we are not good, that a good God who destroys all that is not good would destroy us. Admitting that you are a sinner, you are not good, is the start. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a call to repentance. It's the very start. Then trust. Trust there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself from the wrath of God, but trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is all that you need. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. If you've never done that, right now, get on your knees before God and pray. I'm not going to give you words to say, because the words have to come from your own heart. But start by telling him your sin. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Then, out loud, tell Jesus that he is Lord. Out loud, tell him you believe he died and rose again. Out loud, ask him to save you. The amazing thing is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God promised this. What are my personal thoughts and my personal prayers with everything that's going on? I remember 9-11. And I remember in our fear, we gave up some freedoms and gave the government more control. The government never gave that back. Governments never give up control willingly. So I believe personally that things are not going to go back to normal. I believe there's going to be a push for a mandatory vaccine. And there will also be a push for the ID2020. Hopefully I'm wrong. But as someone who studies history, I'm keenly aware governments only have power taken away when the people fight the government and forcibly take the power back. And I don't see that happening. I also believe, like 9-11, God is going to use this to bring people to himself. I also think the church is going to come to a divide. There's going to be the churches that still want their services to be mostly entertainment and who want to be loved by the world, most importantly. But I believe there's going to be a new revival in other churches with a longing to know the word of God and a willingness to follow God even if it's the opposite direction the culture is going. When I pray, what am I praying for? I'm praying that God will keep the nations of the world in this lockhold 
as long as is needed to bring his people to a place of repentance where they need to be. Today, as I was prepping this, I was playing my Spotify list of instrumental hymns. And this is the song that came up. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. Search me and try me, master today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. As in your presence, humbly I bow. This is my prayer. God, have your way. Your way might not make sense to me. Your way may scare me, but have your way. Do what you will to bring us to repentance and to a revival. You are the potter. I'm nothing but clay. So mold me in all of this. Mold me and make me according to your will, not mine. I am here. I'm waiting. I am here yielding to your will. I am here being still. Have your way. Do your plan. But search me and show me where I'm not trusting you. And then forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. And I will stay here in your presence, bowing before you. Whether the virus is suddenly gone and our rights are restored and those pushing for a worldwide government are exposed, or the virus stays and we never have our rights restored and a one-world government comes. Whatever is your plan, God, I trust you. That is my prayer. 